right, good morning, church. It's great to be back with you again in this fashion. Uh, it's always a, a joy and, and privilege for me to get to teach you the word this morning. Um, you know, we're still in John, the Gospel of John, and uh, we'll be in John 7 today. You can uh, open up to John 7 in your Bibles and get ready if you want. But um, Mark discussed the previous passage last week and was looking at kind of, you know, um, how do we trust what Jesus says? We talked about some of, you know, who's getting the glory, some of those things, if you, if you recall. Uh, we're going to be looking at a, a big question again this week, but more in terms of who Jesus is. The title of today is, Who is this Jesus? You see, Jesus wasn't exactly just widely accepted right off the bat. <laughs> Yay, he's here, you know. Um, there were some people who were in that category, but there was a lot of cynicism. You know, he wasn't the only uh, potential Messiah that, um, that they had possibly heard or were going to see in Jerusalem. And so there was a very um, kind of healthy question of who is this guy? Who does he think he is? You know, I don't know how many times y'all thought about that, about somebody, you know, who does this guy think he is? I think every time Ryan Flint walks into the room into a meeting or something, you know, who does this guy think he is? But that's uh, just because I'm looking up at him. But the, uh, um, you know, who, who does he think he is? And I, I mean, you probably had some instances in your life in which you've thought that. And so I was thinking through, you know, when in my life have I thought, who do they think they are? Who is this person? And for me, one of the times that stuck out was watching talent competitions. You know, that person shows up and you start to, you start to measure and you're like, all right. Um, so they look like this, they speak like this, they're, you know, okay, what are they, what are they, what's their talent going to be? And, uh, hmm, and you start to kind of decipher and you kind of guess going in, good or bad, good or bad. In fact, my wife and I have actually done that before, good or bad, and kind of in terms of guessing, well, how is it going to go? And uh, in America's Got Talent, or sorry, in American, American Idol, we were right a lot when we said bad, <laughs> judging a book by its cover. But, you know, um, there was a viral moment about 12 years ago now that many of you may have forgotten, but will remember as soon as we, we show you this clip. But from Britain's Got Talent, there was a lady that every, when she walked in, everyone's saying, who is this? And then everything changed. Y'all might remember Susan Boyle. But next up is a contestant who thinks she has what it takes to put Glasgow on the map. Hello there. Hello, how are you doing? I'm good, how are you? My name is Susan Boyle. I'm nearly 48, currently unemployed but still looking. And I'm going to sing for you on Britain's Got Talent today. Okay, what's the dream? I, I'm trying to be a professional singer. And why hasn't it worked out so far, Susan? I've never been given the chance before, but he's hoping it'll change. Okay, and who would you like to be as successful as? Elaine Page. Elaine Page. Like what are you going to sing tonight? I'm going to sing I Dreamed a Dream from the Miserables. Okay. Big song. <laughs> yeah? Yeah.
I don't know if you remember Susan Boyle or not. I'm sure many of you do. In fact, um, even those who didn't watch Britain's Got Talent on a regular basis knew who Susan Boyle was because it was all over all the morning talk shows and all that stuff because you could even see in the crowd, they're saying, well, who is this? There's, oh, she's gonna sing that song? Okay, right? And, and not expecting anything. And then all of a sudden everything changed. Now, I wish I could tell you that's what happens to Jesus. <laughs> he, he walked in, said, I'm Jesus. And they all stood up and started clapping. Not exactly. But I do think that gives us the right framework and understanding in terms of how to approach this passage with this idea, this concept of who is this Jesus? Who does he think he is? And trying to decipher who he is um, as they ask other questions. If you, don't, um, if you grab that outline on your way, and by the way, we do have these printed again. I was just going to point that out to y'all who, didn't, who weren't aware of that yet. You can grab one of these on the way in. They're at the, the doors when you, uh, when you come in. You already can look at it and kind of see where we're going. But let me paint a picture for what is about to happen happen, right? We're going to be taking a look at this passage based on the questions that the crowd is asking, all right? We're going to look at four questions that the crowd is asking amongst themselves, trying to figure out who this Jesus is, and then we're going to narrow in on the, the question that we all need to be answering in the end, all right? And so as we analyze these questions, what we're going to realize is the big idea for today, that Jesus is the Christ, sent with a purpose and supernaturally confirmed, that Jesus is the Christ, sent with a purpose, and supernaturally confirmed. All right, let's, let's read our passage for today. It's verses 25 through 36, and then we'll, we'll break it down. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is, this, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true and him you do not know. I know him for I come from him and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not be able to find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. So we see four questions in this passage today. The first one is, why aren't they stopping him? Why aren't they stopping him? Look back at verse 25. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking, only, uh, speaking openly and they're doing nothing. You see, if you remember from last week, there was a reference to the crowd speaking and saying, who's trying to kill you? You have a demon. And yet today, just a few verses later, we see a very separate question of people saying, well, isn't this the one they're trying to kill? And it can be confusing at first. It was for me when I was, I'm like, okay, they're saying this and they're saying this. Are they just, are they schizophrenic? You know, what, are they just confused? What's going on here? And what we realize as we look at it is they're referred to differently. The group, if you look back at it in verse 20 from Mark's passage last week, is referred to as the crowd speaking. What we have today is the people of Jerusalem. 
So I think the best conclusion to come to is that the crowd involved some people from all over the place. There were a lot of people who traveled to Jerusalem for that feast. It was customary as a Jew to do that. And so we have the crowd being completely unaware that there was a plot to possibly arrest and kill this Jesus. So they're saying, what's wrong with you? What do you have to do? No one's around here trying to kill you. And yet just a couple of verses later, we have people from Jerusalem saying, now isn't this the one they're trying to kill? Now, remember, now notice they say they trying to kill. These are not part of the Sanhedrin or the ruling Jews. They're not saying we are trying to kill us, man. They're saying they. And so these appear to be some people in the crowd who are from Jerusalem that are at least somehow knowledgeable of a plot against Jesus or at least how Jesus is viewed. We even see in John, uh, earlier in John chapter seven and verses 12 and 13, you see that there's a fear among the Jews because the Sanhedrin didn't want to hear about Jesus. They didn't want to hear people talking about Jesus. So these people understand what's going on. And they're standing here seeing Jesus teach openly. Why aren't they doing anything about him? And they asked this question, why aren't they stopping him? But they wondered if the Jewish leaders were starting to believe in Jesus, but his timing was lost on them. So why is he not, they're not stopping him? And they, they ask another question I didn't put as one of the main questions, but they say, um, can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? Are they starting to believe? Are they not doing anything because they're little, maybe they're starting to second guess what they've been thinking and saying? So they wonder, why is no one stopping him? Is it possible that they are starting to believe? But what we see from the greater context and in a verse in just, a, in just a few minutes, that even if the Pharisees had brought everybody in all of Jerusalem to arrest Jesus right then and there, they would not have been able to because his time had not yet come and they had no way of overruling the sovereignty of God. Then they transition to a bit of a, um, I admit is an implied question. They don't actually ask this question outright, but they, they kind of answer their own question about, are they possibly believing by implying our second question, where is he from? Where is he from? And they say, um, this, is, this is what they say. They say, but we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. You see, they thought they knew where he was from, but his divine origin was lost on them. His divine origin was lost on them. They didn't really understand Jesus and where he came from, even though they thought they did. So much of scripture is dripping with irony, and this passage right here isn't uh, an exception to that. You see, Jesus, uh, Jesus proclaimed, it's, it's more of like an, an, a kind of a, an, a loud verbal proclamation because he knows what they're, um, what they're muttering. And he says, you know me, and you know where I come from. I think he says it with a smirk. Because <laughs> think about it. These people are saying, oh yeah, we know where he comes from. Essentially, they're saying, well, he's just too ordinary. He couldn't be the Messiah. We know where he's come from. We know too much about him. He's too human. When the Messiah were to come, there's gonna be more about him that we would know. And if you want to know more about kind of that, that background of where that tradition might have come from and what the, what the Jews knew about the Messiah, I'm going to talk about that a little bit tomorrow in our Beyond the Notes podcast that you can listen to on our podcast. But they were apparently answering this question with, no, we know enough about him and he's no one special. And Jesus responds with, yeah, you know where I come from. 
even though we know that they obviously had no clue. And so I, in, in, my, in my picture, Jesus, in the picture of my head, sorry, is, you know, Jesus is almost saying this like a smirk with an irony of, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, you know where, um, where I come from, all right. And yet then he takes it and he turns it. And he makes it clear that the location in which he once lived is not the point. The point behind his origin is who sent him. Not how much do you know about where he's lived and where his houses have been in his life. He says, you know me and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true and him you do not know. You see, the Jewish people pride themselves on knowing God. The Gentiles didn't know God and they knew God. They were God's people and there was a sense of pride behind that. And anytime they were told by Jesus that they didn't know God, they responded in anger because he was offending them. And now how much they understood about what he was saying in that moment right there, we're not really sure. But he's making clear that he is from the one, the true one, whom they did not know because if they truly knew him, they would be accepting him because he came from the Father. He takes it and he turns it. And he says, yeah, 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 that's fine. You, you know where I lived one time. Good for you. You don't get it. I didn't come on my own. I'm not in this town just to get some people to follow me or make some money somehow, make a name for myself. I came here because I was sent here by God. They ask this question, where is he from? Then we have this, this verse, in, uh, verse 30 that I think, at least in my opinion, is kind of in an odd spot. We have this exchange and it says, so they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not come. And you know, some people believe that it's referring back to uh, what was just, or sorry, he's referring to that exchange right there and that there was a, an immediate response to Jesus and they tried to arrest him right then, but they couldn't. Others would say that it's, it's foreshadowing or, or, or looking towards what we see in just a minute where there was an actual arrest warrant put out and officers sent to arrest Jesus. So I think the, the best way to look at this verse right here is it's kind of a summary verse in the midst of what's going on. We have this exchange that we see right now and it's responding to, well, no, yes, just because you don't see them trying to arrest him in the moment. They were trying to arrest Jesus. And we see in just a minute how they actually sent people to arrest Jesus. And yet, because it wasn't his time, they were not going to succeed. They would succeed eventually, but they would succeed in God's timing when he ordained it. Then we get to what I think is the most important verse that we look at this morning in verse 31. And we're going to camp out here for just a little bit because we do have some people in the crowd who did believe. They're referred to as believing in Jesus in some way. And it says in verse 31, Yet many of the people believed in him, that, and they said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? In other words, if this is not the Messiah, when we do see the Messiah, is he really going to do more than this guy is doing right now? Referring to the miracles of Jesus. You see, they acknowledged and noticed the supernatural confirmation that was going on. I used to struggle earlier on in my faith with why we don't see miracles today like we do in the Bible. I would read the Bible and I would read about the miracles that were done. 
And I, would, and I would look around and say, well, is it just a fairy tale? Why is that still not happening today on the same scale? I'm not saying that God's not working miracles or can't work miracles today, but I think we would all agree that the miracles are not being done on the same scale as we read in the Bible. We don't have a man going from town to town healing everyone he sees. We don't have seas being parted. We don't, have, we don't see the same scale of miracles. And so let's talk about miracles for a minute. The primary purpose of biblical miracles is to confirm a message and its messenger. The primary purpose of the miracles we see in the Bible is to confirm a message and its messenger. You don't want to take my word for it. We see it over and over again in scripture. We see it lived out in real time as those miracles are being done. We also see that same sentence essentially confirmed on multiple occasions. If you remember when John sent his disciples to Jesus to say, are you the one or should we be waiting for another one? Do you remember what Jesus said to him? He didn't teach them something. He said, look around. The lame walk, the blind see. Look at what's happening and see it as confirmation and go back and tell John what you see. We see in the actual gospel of John, that they're gonna put these verses on the screen for you in John chapter 20. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. We see it even in the early church. 2 Corinthians 12, 12 says that the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. You see, actually, when it comes down to it, our entire faith is based on one miracle, the resurrection. Christianity is a, is a uh, religion that is based on historical events. None more important than the resurrection itself. If the body could have been provided as proof that Jesus was dead, the church would have stopped. If it was possible for me to prove to you today that Jesus is not alive, this church should shut its doors. We should all walk away from the faith and go about something else. Because in the words of Paul from 1 Corinthians 15, if Jesus is not alive, if he has not conquered death, if he has not been resurrected, then we are, then our faith is in vain. Our faith is futile. And actually, we are most of all to be pitied on this earth because we are sacrificing our lives for a lie. And we're actually even lying about God. Read that passage from 1 Corinthians 15 later today. It's amazing just how important the resurrection is. Let me illustrate it for you just for a minute. Imagine, I know there's, there's always a, you know, a weakness in any kind of illustration you use, and so I understand you, you could probably point some holes in this one as well, but for fun, for a minute, imagine that I was coming into this place and I told you that I have a new message from God. Imagine some of those early days where you know, the, the apostles were going into towns that had never heard of Jesus, saying, guess what? God came to this earth and died for you. If I came into this place and said, I have a new message for you about Jesus and you and, and how this is all gonna, gonna work out, and it's, it's, it's a building onto the, the Bible you already have, you should rightfully think I was a little bit crazy. 
If I walked in here saying, I have a new message for you, that, if, that we all need to pack our bags right now, we need to move to Cincinnati because only people who live in Cincinnati in the next six months are going to heaven. Y'all should start a text or an email right now to the elders and say, this man has lost it. But if I was to, to stand before you and tell you that I have this new message from God or even that I was God myself as Jesus did, and then I took this bottle of water and I snapped my fingers or whatever Jesus did at the wedding. And I turned this water into wine or coffee or Mountain Dew or whatever it is so we can all partake in it. You'd be going, huh, that's strange. He's a chemist, apparently. But then I bring someone to this building and I walk them right in front of you who you know has been blind since birth. And I make it possible for him to see. Then I bring another person into this room who you know has been crippled since birth and cannot walk. And I say, get up, take your mat and go. You should start to wonder, I wonder if he's telling the truth. Because you would be wondering if this God is communicating with me. You would want to know, is this actually God communicating with me? Is this actually a message from God? And God doesn't communicate his new message without confirming his new message. Supernaturally confirming his new message. It shouldn't be a surprise then when we, when we understand and realize that after creation, the vast majority of biblical miracles are performed by these people. Moses, the prophets, Jesus and the apostles. Why is it not surprising? Because between them, they wrote most of this. <laughs> they were bringing a new message. And the people were wondering, should we trust this or not? Should have been wondering, should we trust this or not? And it was confirmed through supernatural means. And we see that in the lives of all of those three groups. So why not today? Like I said, I used to struggle with that. But when I came to the understanding of the purpose of miracles in the Bible, and I started to realize, no, actually it's logical that we don't see miracles on the same scale today because we don't have a new message from God. That we can go through our life in confidence, not letting something hold down our faith or some kind of doubt because we're not seeing the scale of miracles from scripture today. There's a reason for it. That there is no need for the same scale of miracles today because there is no new message needing confirmation. So I don't know if that's ever been a struggle in your life. I know it wasn't mine. And hopefully that's an encouragement to you today. That not only was this confirmed supernaturally, but we shouldn't be walking around expecting the same thing to happen again. Some people would say, well, yeah, I'll come to faith in Christ if, you know, if a miracle just happened right in front of me, right? If God just revealed himself to me in one of those ways like in the Bible. Well, it's interesting, you know, it, it kind of makes sense at first when you hear someone say that. Okay, maybe you would. And yet, not everybody received Jesus and he was performing all kinds of miracles. And on top of that, we have a fascinating parable from Jesus himself. It's usually titled in your, in your Bible as the rich man and Lazarus. 
And what we see is the rich man and Lazarus both die. Lazarus is in paradise with Abraham. The rich man is in Hades. And the rich man is begging Abraham, please send Lazarus to my family. Because if this dead man will walk up to them and tell them the truth, they will believe. Because a dead man walking in and saying, listen, you know I'm dead, now I'm alive, listen to me. They believe. But Abraham's response is not, yeah, sure, all right. Abraham's response in that parable is if they don't accept what's already been supernaturally confirmed, a dead man walking into the room is not gonna change that. This has already been supernaturally confirmed. And we can trust in it because of that. And a, a dead person walking in the room is not going to change that if we don't accept this already. Let's move on to this last question. Where is he going? Where is he going? We see um, that this, uh, apparently the Pharisees and the, uh, the, the Sanhedrin as a whole has gotten tired of hearing the murmurings <laughs> about Jesus. We don't know exactly what you know, they've, uh, they've heard for sure, if they were in the crowd or not. More likely that the Pharisees were in the crowd than the Sadducees, because the Sadducees were more of the separated over in the tentle, tentle, wow, temple people. And then the Pharisees were more of the men of the people that were kind of in there with them. But apparently they've heard some of these conversations about Jesus. They've heard some of his murmuring, murmurings and they have had enough. So they finally set out an arrest warrant for Jesus. And they, they sent these officers to arrest him. Most likely, they've sent them on a, uh, on a mission that was kind of like, you know, arrest him when you have an opportunity, not in a walk-in, you know, push the crowd away and take him by force kind of thing. And if you want to see actually the end of this, you have to skip forward to verse 45 where, where those officers finally come back. We don't see that in our, in our passage, and they kind of explain why they didn't arrest Jesus. But what we see is an exchange here because this arrest warrant's put out and I think Jesus is responding to this arrest warrant in this passage. He says, I will be with you a little longer and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. He's, yes, Jesus is being a little obscure. But he is telling them where he's going. He's going back to the one who sent him. And so their, their question is, where is he going? They don't understand what he's saying. And they misunderstood his purpose because they ignored who he was. They misunderstood what he was talking about because they were ignoring who was standing in front of them. He just told them, I've been sent by the one true God. I'm going back to the one true God. It shouldn't have been as confusing as it apparently was to them. And they wonder, well, is he going to the Greeks? Is he going out and he's going to speak to, he's going to go with the diaspora and the Jews out, and, uh, out abroad and then, and then teach the Greeks? And they were just confused. But they wouldn't have been if they understood who he was. And so essentially with all these questions, they're asking the question that every one of us must answer. And to put it in the words of Jesus from Matthew chapter 16, but who do you say that I am? He asked his disciples that. Who do you say that I am? That question, had they answered it and understood it in the time, would have simplified the rest of their questions. Where is he from? He's from God. Where is he going? Going back to God. What about these miracles? Well, the miracles he's doing because he's God and he's confirming his message and him as the messenger. Well, what about why they weren't stopping him? He's God. 
You see, if they understood who he was, they would have known that he was the original plan since before any of us were ever created. That God knew at some point we would sin against him. We would be needing a savior to pay the penalty for our sins. Otherwise, we have to pay for them ourselves and be separated from him for eternity. And that that was the purpose that Jesus had come for, that he was sent for. Our big idea today that he is the Christ, sent with a purpose and supernaturally confirmed. You see, when we have that answer understood, it simplifies the rest of our questions. You may have asked a lot of questions this week, a lot of what's, where's, when's, why's kind of things, asking God, where are you? How long is this going to go on? Why won't you take away this pain? Why is this happening? When we understand who he is, it simplifies those. It doesn't get rid of the pain. It doesn't remove us from all the difficult situations we find ourselves in. In fact, in scripture, we see that those with the most faith that were following Christ the closest had some of the hardest lives. It didn't result in easy life. It didn't result in happy circumstances throughout. They had a joy based on who he was and it simplified the rest of their questions and pursuits. That's the question I want us to focus on today. Who do you say that he is? If you're a believer who's already answered that question, that he is the Christ, he is my Lord and Savior, you have repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus as the only possible way to not have to pay for them yourself. Refocus yourself on that question today. Because if you're anything like me, I know I get distracted. And I start to ask all these other questions that in hindsight, looking back, I would say, if I was more focused on who Jesus was, these would be simpler. I'd be more focused on him. And yet as the, as the band comes out and we start to, um, to wrap up and sing one more song together, some of you in this room, when I asked that question, may have thought, well, I've never answered that question. I would argue we've all answered that question, just in different ways. Your answer in the past might have been, I don't care. I don't care who Jesus is. Your answer might have been, I don't know, he's a, he's a legend, never really walked the earth. Your answer could be, well, he was, I don't know, he was just some good teacher, but he's not God. I don't know what your answer was. But I hope you take it seriously today that this is the question for all of life. Who is Jesus? And my hope and prayer for you is that you don't leave this place today without placing your trust in him. And for those of us who already have, that we can refocus on who he is and what that means for every day of our lives. And we can start living this life in light of eternity like we should.